Well, I was uh, noticing in the news that uh, uh, this little town in southwestern Kentucky, Mayfield, Kentucky, was one of the towns hit hard by those tornadoes. Maybe you saw that. And uh, so as I was thinking about tornadoes, Steve, I was, I was thinking about Levi Stadium, where the 49ers play. I don't know if you heard this, but in the Bay Area, they said if there's ever a tornado, everybody should head to Levi Stadium because there hadn't been a touchdown there in years. But, uh, but <clears throat> I know, I, I got to get it all in now because I may be crying tonight. Um, so, uh, no, but actually when I heard that, I did think about an interesting story out of Mayfield, Kentucky from the late 19th century. Maybe you've heard this, but there was a small church there that uh, had a couple of deacons, and these two deacons were constantly arguing with each other. I mean, they were at each other's throats. Every little thing became a big thing. They just couldn't get along. And the bickering came to a head one Sunday. Again, this is late 19th century, when one of the deacons installed a small wooden peg at the back of the one-room wooden uh, church sanctuary so that the pastor could come when he came and could hang his hat on the peg as he came to church. Well, when the other deacon discovered what his rival had done, boy, he was furious. How dare you put a peg in the church wall without first consulting me? And as word got out about this latest disagreement, people began taking sides. Well, that's just like old Joe to take matters into his own hands, some people grumbled. Well, old Bob must not like our pastor much if he doesn't want him to have a place to hang his hat, others muttered. Well, soon factions began to form. You know, some thought installing the peg was a tribute to the pastor, a way to help him. Others thought it was desecrating the sanctuary, you know. Well, eventually the feud split the congregation, and many people left to start their own church. And as I'm told, the story goes, to, to this day, the residents of Mayfield still refer to the two churches as Peg Baptist and Anti-Peg Baptist. That's a true story. What? Yeah, I know. Well, you know, as we come to Acts chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, we're going to camp out here for a while because there's so much here that gives us some a template, if you will, a model for how the early church functioned. Now, we know, of course, that the book of Acts is descriptive, not always prescriptive, but as the New Testament goes on and God pours out His revelation through the pen of the human authors like Paul and others, we begin to see some instruction and doctrine for how to do church, and we go back and we look at how the first church there in Jerusalem functioned, and it fits the mold. Uh, so uh, I think it's, it's really important to kind of remember where we've been. Remember, we started out this series two weeks ago on uh, talking about looking to the rock from which we were hewn. And so uh, we were in chapter two last week, but we want to focus on the last eight verses of chapter two this week and really for the next uh, couple of weeks at least, I think. Uh, but let me put it in context. You know, in, in the book of Acts, Jesus uh, gives some instruction to his disciples on the Mount of Olives about what next. Remember, he had been crucified, resurrected, appeared to many people. It was now uh, 40 days after his resurrection. And, 
He, right before the disciples' eyes, ascends to the right hand of the throne of God where he is to this day, waiting to return and establish the long-awaited kingdom on earth. We talked a little bit about that or referenced it in our 9 o'clock hour. By the way, next week in the 9 o'clock hour, I'm going to be talking about the second coming and the biblical teaching about that uh, climactic event. But after Jesus ascended, then the disciples went back to Jerusalem. They met together, they prayed together, and they uh, chose a replacement for Judas uh, named Matthias. And then we picked it up in chapter 2 with Peter's famous amazing sermon in which he outlines the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and how you can only be saved through faith in Him. Many people were saved, and this week we begin to see the results of what happened after that incredible move of the Holy Spirit uh, in fulfillment of prophecy as the Spirit of God came and moved among uh, the people, and the church was birthed, if you will. The church was established and founded on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension of our Lord. And uh, so now we get into what next from that point. The, 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 the church is, is born, but what does it look like? So the question that I want us to think about this morning is, what is the difference between uh, what we might call Jerusalem Chapel and Plum Creek Chapel? Uh, obviously, that church was in a different time, a different culture, a different historical setting, and yet we're all believers in Jesus Christ. Time and distance, I understand, but 2,000 years later, the, the Word of God is timeless. What, what's the difference? Uh, we're all supposed to be trying to spread the gospel, but uh, how have things changed in the 2,000 intervening years, and have they changed? And have any principles changed? And if so, how? But I think it, it comes down to understanding the difference between the mission of the church at large, the church global, and an individual local church's vision. And so I want to start this morning by kind of talking about mission versus vision. You know, in the Bible, we call it the Great Commission, but it's really Jesus telling the church what it's supposed to do while we await His return. So let's talk about mission versus vision. I used to teach a course for six years at the college level on visioneering, and uh, particularly in rel related to churches and Christian ministries, and it's really helpful to kind of understand the distinction. So it starts with the mission, which then manifests itself in a vision. So the mission is the broad purpose for which the church exists. At any given time in human history, God has a designated set group of people that, are, that He intends to be His envoys, whether that was Adam and Eve in the garden, or whether that was Noah after the flood, whether that was Abraham or Moses or the children of Israel. Today, it's the church. And if we don't do our job as outlined in Scripture, nobody else is going to do it. God doesn't have a plan B. Uh, and I believe the church started exuberantly, vibrantly, energetically doing what the risen Lord Jesus had told them to do. Remember, the Great Commission was given after the resurrection. And, but I think over 2,000 years of uh, what the Bible would call this great last days of deception, 
Satan's deception has gotten worse and worse, and the church has gotten more and more apostate, and we've drifted further and further from this fundamental mission of the church. But that mission then morphs into a vision, which is specific ways that the local church, in this case Plum Creek Chapel, can accomplish that mission. <clears throat> Obviously, if we were fulfilling the Great Commission in the underground church in China, we would look a bit different, wouldn't we? If we were fulfilling the Great Commission in inner city Los Angeles, uh, we would look a bit different, wouldn't we? Uh, if we were fulfilling the Great Commission in Africa, you get the point. But God has put us right here when he gave John Schrag and the Brian Fellowship and others a heart and a, and a passion to plant a church here. And this is our Jerusalem. So we can do things that other people can't. And we need to be thinking about what are some of those things. You know, uh, if you study <clears throat> the life cycle of change, uh, and we may get, I may incorporate some of this into the next couple of weeks, but of any church or organization, it seems like every 20 years, historically, organizations and churches need to recast the vision. They plateau. They, things change. Life changes. Culture changes. People change. The city changes. And in some cases, you know, churches were at one point were out in a suburban area, and after 20 years or maybe 40 years, that whole area changes, it transitions, its properties are being sold off, and businesses are coming up, and suddenly you look around and you're surrounded by concrete. And you think, okay, <clears throat> this is different than when we started the church. What do we need to do now to fulfill the Great Commission? And so it's interesting that Plum Creek Chapel will be celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. And uh, we're looking forward to that in September. But I think it's a helpful time, especially at the beginning of the year, and especially as we're going through the book of Acts, to ask some of these questions. How can we fulfill the Great Commission effectively? What are some things that we can do better? What are some things that we can do that we're not doing right now that maybe need to be done? What are some things that we can do that we've done in the past, but for one reason or another have gotten away from? Maybe we need to reconsider some of those ministries and initiatives to ultimately to bring people to faith in Christ and help them grow up in spiritual maturity through the teaching of God's Word. So the mission is timeless, it's biblical, it's absolute. The vision is local and situational, and it also changes over time. <clears throat> the mission applies to all churches. A church today that is not <clears throat> focused on the biblical mission cannot rightly call itself a church. And we have a lot of those. We are living in the apostate age. There are, uh, you know, I can remember when David Fiorazzo was here, we talked about uh, maybe 95% of churches have really abandoned the, the truth of God's Word and are not really fulfilling the biblical mission. I don't know how you can really quantify that scientifically, but that's my dead reckoning of the situation. A vision applies to the local church uniquely. And I think what happens sometimes with churches that end up dying is they forget to regularly ask the question, how are we fulfilling the mission? What are some unique ways that we can serve the Lord in this church age that other bodies of believers cannot do? So you might say the mission is concerned with why and the vision is concerned with how. 
The mission is concerned with why. This is God's plan of the ages. God's word tells us to do this. This is what he's leading up to. Ultimately, the church is going to be caught up together at the blessed hope to meet the Lord in the air prior to the final end times <coughs> Excuse me, plan of God being uh, you know, inaugurated uh, on earth. Um, but the vision is how. how. How do we do this? And how can we best uh, do this? So if you, if you look at it this way, Christ has one mission for his church. And it hasn't changed. Until the Lord catches us up to meet him in the air, then there'll be a new group that enters center stage that's in the spotlight on planet earth. And that'll be the nation of Israel, by the way. First with 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that God supernaturally sets apart to be his missionaries, his evangelists during the seven-year tribulation. But ultimately, when Christ comes back, takes the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and rules uh, from Israel as Israel is once again center stage. But right now, Christ has one mission uh, for his church, and that is go into all the world and preach the gospel. It says it several different ways. Each of the gospel writers articulate it. We even read about it at the beginning of Acts when he says, you know, you're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, so, you know, within this mission, <clears throat> Plum Creek Chapel has a vision. And we're going to be, you know, talking about that and helping to mold and shape it and tweak it and refine it, something that should happen regularly. Uh, uh, but that vision, you know, we've had a vision from the start, but that vision is not static. It's got to be evaluated. And, you know, we're a different church than we were even three years ago. And so we've got to ask ourselves, are we being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us and how can we more effectively reach others? We were just talking uh, at the break about possibly hosting a, some type of end times conference, prophecy conference uh, here. That's a great idea. And then our wheels started turning and that, that, these are the kind of discussions I love to have. And then you know, we get the leadership involved, we cast, cast a vision, talk about ideas, brainstorm, and you know, like last year we did our God and Country Day. That was a neat thing, and it really glorified the Lord, and it brought people here, and it and it and I think was a was a, a wonderful event. We're going to talk more about God's blessings in the past year at our uh, meeting uh, coming up on January 30th. But within Christ's mission, there are other visions. You know, <clears throat> you know, there's the vision for Church A, the vision for Church C, and so forth. And if they're a Bible teaching, Bible believing you know, handling the Word of God correctly, church, they're going to be fulfilling Christ's mission, but they're going to be doing it in unique ways that Plum Creek Chapel can't do it. Now, obviously, if you have a church whose, you know, vision is outside of Christ's mission, maybe they're more about socializing, more about uh, money or building membership and other things, they have a different focus, then that's not at all what God's Word would consider a church. And they, this has been true throughout the ages. There are always churches that may be church in name only, but they're actually outside of the parameters of the biblically defined mission. And we call that the apostate church. And Paul tells us in First and Second Timothy that there are going to be more and more of these. So we want to make sure that we are firmly committed to Christ's mission for his church. And always ask ourselves, how does this part of our vision tie back to that? And if it's not something that's going to 
ultimately, either directly or indirectly, help build people up in the faith if they're already believers or come to faith if they don't know the Lord, then we have to ask ourselves, is it worth the time, the energy, the effort, the, the financial expenditure, right? So we can't be responsible for other churches. Uh, we might lament some of them that are out of God's will and so forth, but we need to stay laser focused on what role Plum Creek Chapel plays in the billions of people in this world in terms of God's mission for the church. This is the church age. So what happens when there's no unified vision? I've seen this happen again and again as I travel and speak at churches, as I consult uh, with churches that are struggling and other uh, Christian organizations. But when there's no unified vision, uh, it creates a problem. So let's say, for example, that at Plum Creek Chapel, the leadership has a vision that, that there's certain priorities and things that are important to your leadership, your deacons and elders. Uh, but let's say that Jeff and his team they have a vision, and there are certain priorities and passions and things that are important to the music ministry, uh, or let's say the women's ministry, maybe our women's prayer gathering as the women pray together, and then as they collaborate outside of their monthly meetings, they begin to prioritize and have passions and think, man, we really need this, or I really like to do this, or this is what's important to me, or the men's ministry. You know, let's say as the men are having breakfast, you know, they start talking and they say, here's what I think we need, and, and, and this is what's important to us. And all of a sudden you have all these different visions, and it's not unified. And so it ends up in what I call a fractured church, a fractured church. There may be nothing wrong with each of these visions in particular. They all may be good ideas, but they're not unified. They've got to all be working toward the same goal, right? So how can we avoid a fractured vision? The answer is simple. It all starts with our mission. We've got to make sure that our vision for Plum Creek Chapel corresponds to and emanates from, flows from, Christ's mission. The early disciples knew without a doubt what Jesus wanted them to do what they were called to accomplish. It had just been a matter of weeks since he had told them. And he also told them very specifically on the Mount of Olives before he ascended, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then follow his leadership. That's why last week we talked about catching the wind of the Holy Spirit and how important that is in the local church and in the life of individual believers that were sensitive uh, to the Holy Spirit. So, Let's take a look at the model church. We'll say this is part one because I'm going to camp out here for a while. I'm not sure how many parts there'll be. But what are some characteristics of the model church? Uh, let me read just these eight verses so that it'll be fresh in our minds. I don't have the whole passage on the screen. We'll get to each one as we come to the points. But uh, let me read. This is the end of Acts chapter 2. Peter's just finished his sermon. The people have responded. They were cut to the heart. They believed his message. They said, now what do we do? And listen to what Luke, the, the historian, the narrator, tells us. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So Peter continued his message even after the climactic ending. He continued to talk to people and preach to them and 
remind them that they're in a perverse generation. Now, contextually, what he was talking about was the generation of the Roman uh, and Jewish conspiracy that led to the rejection of the Messiah instead of embracing him as the king of kings. Uh, but notice Luke says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. In other words, those who believed the gospel and got saved were then baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now we'll come back to this time and again through Luke's account of these are what I call progress reports. And it's very interesting to me that when Luke says so many, such and such a number of people were added to their number, that tells us something. It tells us they knew what the number was. So that tells us that it is important to keep tabs on the body. You know, some churches today don't keep records. They don't have membership. They just say, come one, come all, like you're going to a movie theater, right? And, and I, I'm not trying to be critical, but I think there's a biblical precedent for knowing who the church family is. Because how can you add to that number if you don't have a number to start with, right? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. That's phobos, where we get the word phobia in Greek. And it, depending on the context, it can mean like terror, like literally scared out of your wits, but it can also mean reverence, seriousness, somberness. That's I think, is what the context is here. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. We're going to talk about how through the early days of the church, while the Bible was still being written, there were many signs and wonders to validate that this is a legitimate move of God. It was a paradigm shift, a new dispensation, a new uh, economy, if you will, uh, a new era in God's uh, plan of the ages, a new way in which we interacted with man, and that needed to be validated. Uh, now, today, in our day, it's, it's validated through the infallible teaching of God's Word. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and delivered them among all as anyone had need. So the early church was a bunch of communists. Is that what that means? No, not at all. you got to understand it in the context, and we'll get there. Uh, it just talked about how in their day, they had a need. They didn't live in the land of plenty and land of freedoms evaporating, though they may be. Uh, in their day, that was a necessity. So they had to have all things in common. Uh, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's another key point. We're going to get to all of these. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Again, they have to know the number. So I want to just mention the first two characteristics of the model uh, church. The first one, which we saw right off the bat, is baptism. For 2,000 years now, baptism has been part of the Christian church. Uh, it's not, it didn't start with the Christian church. Baptism is an ancient custom that predates Christianity by millennia. But it is a custom that has been adopted by the Christian faith. Uh, to emphasize uh, the fact that we're all part of the same team. So ba water baptism does not save you. It has no bearing on your eternal destiny. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But it is commanded, as we're going to see when we get to Acts chapter 10, it's something that once you get saved, it's a, it's a, a way to outwardly express what has happened inwardly. And though the mode might differ through the 2,000 years, uh, the emphasis, at least according to Scripture, 
should always be that baptism is an outward expression of an inward experience. And, uh, and so we saw in verse 41 that those who gladly received his word were baptized. In other words, they said, yeah, I'm born again. I'm part of the family of God. I've been saved. And I'd like to proclaim that. You know, I'd like to, you know, to show everybody that I'm saved. So we see Paul, the apostle in Romans, kind of talking about water baptism as a visual picture of the spiritual baptism that takes place at conversion. Remember, we talked about this last week, that the Holy Spirit baptizes us, identifies us with Christ the moment you place your faith in Him. That's called spirit baptism. Baptism is just a way of identifying with something. So water baptism is a way to say, hey, I identify with all you, right? So water baptism doesn't identify you with Christ. That's already happened, hopefully, if you've trusted Christ. But it does say, I'm part of the club. I'm with you. Okay? I've been saved like you have. I've trusted in Christ like you have. Uh, but if we go to Romans 6, Paul says, Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death. Interesting. You know, the, the word picture of baptism is you would go down into the, the river, the lake, a baptistry, a hot tub, some body of water. And, and, and then you would go under the water, symbolizing the burial. And then you come out, symbolizing the resurrection or the new life. And by the way, water throughout Scripture is often uh, a symbol of sin, of evil, Remember, uh, there was, you know, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be sea because there's no sin. And water was used by God as judgment on the whole earth at the global flood. So it's appropriate that, you know, water baptism, even though it predates Christianity, Paul here sort of describes it and says, hey, think about this. You know, you were in sin, but you trusted Christ. You've died and been buried with Christ under the water. Now, when I baptize people, I don't leave them under the water for three days because I've found that uh, doesn't always work. But it's just symbol. You with me? It's just a symbol. And then you come up out uh, of the water, symbolizing the resurrection. So Paul says, "We're buried with him by baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life." So baptism is symbolic. The water baptism is symbolic, and it just identifies that we have a new life. Now, if you don't ever get baptized, that, that's not something that's going to keep you out of heaven. There's only one way to get to heaven. That's by faith alone and Christ alone. But I think it is an important first step. It's an important step of obedience. And if you're you know, listening to this or you're here and you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to pray about it and come see one of the, you know, myself or one of the other uh, leaders here. We'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe we need to have a baptism service, right? Uh, so baptism is one of the characteristics of the model church. The second one, though, which I'm really excited about, is this idea of community. This idea of community. Uh, we see it first in verse 41. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And at the end, in verse 47, he says, and the Lord added daily to them. There is a, a body, there is a group whatever you want to call it. We call it the church, but we need to always distinguish between the universal church, meaning all believers all over the world, and the local church, meaning Plum Creek Chapel in our case. 
but they identified with one another. That's why baptism was so important. It was a way to, it was an action that they could take that said, I'm part of the club, so to speak. It didn't make them part of the club. I want to keep emphasizing that. Uh, they were already part of the club, but it's just a way to show it, you know, to announce it. They had another way in the early church, especially during the times as the church uh, progressed westward and Rome became uh, fixated on the Christians. And uh, by the mid-60s, Nero was burning Christians at the stake and killing their families, and there was all kinds of persecution. They had another way that they could identify with one another and show that they were part of a community. I'm sure you've heard of uh, the, 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 the ichthus fish and probably heard the story, but it's really interesting how this uh, came about. Uh, ichthus, which is the Greek word for fish, is actually an acronym. Each of the five letters in the word fish stands for something. And this is the reason the early church chose this symbol. So the uh, iota, Iesus, is Jesus. That's the Greek word Jesus. The key at the beginning of Christos is the word Christ. The uh, theta at the beginning of Theu is of God or God's. And then you've got uh, the sigma at the beginning of Huios, which is sun, or, or rather the upsilon. And then you've got the sigma at the end of soter, which is savior. Iesus, Christos, Theu, Huios, soter. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Now that's pretty powerful that the early church uh, crystallized that, for lack of a better word, uh, made that a key part of their consciousness. They understood who Jesus was. They had walked and talked with Him, but they also understood that He was the Christ, the Messiah who would rule and reign over the earth. They also understood that He was God's Son. He was divine. He was God incarnate. And they also understood that He was their Savior. And that is the essence of the Christian church. But if you take the first letter of each of these words, it spells ichthus or fish in Greek. So the church adopted this idea of fish as a symbol. And so we have uh, archaeological evidence, I'm going to show you a couple in a, in a second, from the early days of the church, that because the church was under attack and was being persecuted, they needed a way when they came across people to kind of know, are you with us or not? And they couldn't just wear a sign because that would identify them and the Romans would come and haul them off. Matter of fact, uh, in the early days of the church, uh, when they met in homes, uh, unlike today, 2,000 years later, if you weren't a Christian, you couldn't get into the church. I mean, the doors were locked. They greeted you at the door. They, they, unless they knew you and knew you were part of God's family, you weren't welcome because you might be a Roman soldier coming in disguise to you know, haul people off. It's eerily similar to what we've seen across the, the world, really, but even in, in some places here with this pandemic and some of the medical tyranny that's been handed down, particularly in places like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, where they've shown up at churches and hauled you off. Now, the last church I was at in the early days of the pandemic, the sheriff let it be known that when, they, when the government says 
you can't hold church. You've got to shut down on Easter and for several weeks after that. He means business. He's going to be his deputies are going to be patrolling, and if there are cars in the parking lot at your church on Sunday, he's coming in. That's what he told us. So, but this was two thousand years ago, and so now today, obviously, the church has evolved and grown, and and as part of our mission, remember, there's different ways to accomplish the mission. The mission is preach the gospel. Today, it's not uncommon at all for unbelievers to come to church, and that's why you give the gospel and you. You want to you never assume that everybody here is a believer. Nothing wrong with that. This is all, you know, descriptive. But I'm just telling you the way it was in the first century. So what would happen when they would come across someone on the road or uh, wondering if they were a Christian, they would just casually take a stick or maybe they're bend down with their finger like they were just fiddling or maybe their foot and they would draw kind of a half circle like that. And if the person that they were talking to was a believer they would get the hint and they would complete it with their stick or their foot. And then they would go, ah, and they would embrace, ah, you're a brother, you're a sister, you're a Christian, I get it. And so we have archaeological evidence of, of these, even, you know, both in dirt and sand uh, and in petroglyphs, even on rocks like this one here uh, or this one here. So uh, as early as the second century, so within a few decades of the time of Christ, right? Um, by the way, I've, in, in researching this, and Steve, you'll, you'll appreciate this especially, I found one petroglyph also from the first and second century that confirmed what I've always thought, and that is that the Cowboys are God's favorite team and all good Christians should be Cowboys. Yeah, it was right there next to the fish. I know it's hard to believe. But, uh, but anyway, so that's the idea of community. And so, the Lord added to their number, and I mentioned these progress reports. Let me just give you a sneak peek at a few of them. We're going to go verse by verse and get to each episode in the book of Acts. But uh, a progress report is whenever Luke, the historian, stops to tell us how the church is doing. How are they growing? Uh, so we saw at the end of chapter 2, the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. You get to chapter 4, he says, oh, about 5,000 people got saved. In chapter 5, he says believers were increasingly added. Uh, chapter 6, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. It's, all, it's always been interesting to me, and I'm sure you've heard this if you've studied Acts, but that in Acts chapter 6, when the church got so large that they had to create deacons to help with the work of the ministry so that the elders could focus on preaching and teaching the Word of God, that's when it started to multiply. And the first time you see Luke use the word multiply, not just uh, add. Uh, and then in chapter 9, they were multiplied. In chapter 11, they, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Again, great many people were added. Added to what? They had to be keeping track. Uh, the Word of God grew and multiplied, chapter 12. Chapter 16, they increased in number daily. Now we're into Paul's uh, third missionary journey. Uh, many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Uh, and that's the model right there that we saw in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 19, the word of the Lord grew mightily uh, or, uh, and prevailed. Right. So uh, these progress reports are uh, something that we're going to come back to again and again, but it all comes from the mission. So there are two important uh, characteristics of the model church, baptism and community. And I personally think Plum Creek Chapel has a phenomenal community. It's just been the blessing of my heart to see 
people interacting and fellowshipping and greeting people as they come in. And we want to continue to do that and make people feel welcome and care for one another because we have to remember we're part of a community. We can't expect the government to help us, you know. We can't rely on, you know, our culture to help us. We're here for each other. So let's stop here with these uh, two. And, uh, but what's the takeaway? Well, when we follow the New Testament model, we're going to see the Spirit of God move. And lives will be changed. And people will be added. When we follow the New Testament model, we're going to see lives changed. Isn't that what it's about? What have I said several times? It's people that don't know the Lord coming to know the Lord, changing lives according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But also those that know the Lord already being molded and shaped in the image of Christ, changing our lives to become more Christ-like, to become more spiritually mature. So on a personal level, and I know we've got people live streaming and people that watch the videos or listen to the audio, but just speaking to our home crowd, you know, I want you to really pray about, are you with us? Are you ready for the ride? It's going to be a great year for Plum Creek Chapel. It's going to be great to see what the Lord does. Uh, and But we want to always remember the mission and make sure that our vision comports with what Christ uh, wanted us to do. The vision can never overshadow the mission. That's what happens in a lot of churches. They become an end to themselves. Well, we can do this, and we can do that, and we can do this, and we can do that. First thing you know, they've got you know Ferris wheels and clowns, and you get a free popcorn if you show up, you know, all this stuff. And you think, I mean, I went there, but I didn't see Christ. Where was he, you know? So we, got, we never want the vision to overshadow the mission. We want the mission to drive the vision. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, just this reminder from the early church and uh, just for uh, the description that we see there that is so fresh, frankly, and yet uh, something that really should be very tangible and very real to us even 2,000 years later. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for our commitment to your word and the legacy that we have here all the way from our inception to be committed to your word. And Lord, I pray uh, most of all, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that hasn't taken that initial step of faith, hasn't come to that moment in time where they trusted in your son and our savior as their only hope for eternal life and trusted in him to give them that free gift. I pray that today, even right now, they would do that, that they would become part of the broader family of God and that they would connect here with uh, this local assembly. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.